Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode is a chance to listen again to the interview that Helen and I recorded with Michael Lewis just before Christmas, in which he warned about the possibility that the Trump administration had destroyed America's capacity to deal with the next great crisis. At the end, Helen and I are going to be reflecting on what Michael Lewis's warning means to us today. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China, from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. Helen, before we listen to the interview, and it was very memorable, I think we both enjoyed it, but it also seems like it comes from a distant time. It was December when we thought politics was all about Brexit and the British general election. Did it stay with you? I mean, as as this crisis, we'll talk more about this after people have heard what Michael Lewis had to say. As this crisis unfolded, did you find yourself thinking back to that warning? Yeah, I did. I think that particularly in the in the first weeks of the crisis, when Trump was utterly floundering around in the way in which he was not engaging with it. Well, sort of pretending that he that that he was. I, I thought that what Michael Lewis had said and what he wrote in the book was 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 really prophetic because, in one sense, the it wasn't just a, a warning what had, what had happened to the American administrative state under Trump. It was kind of, a, if you like, almost a prophecy that what would destroy Trump would be this particular failure and that a crisis that involved Trump having to subordinate himself to people who knew monumentally more than he did about something was going to bring out every single destructive thing about the the Trump presidency and and that I thought in the in the first few weeks in particular was very much the way it was playing out. So let's listen to that interview with Michael Lewis, The Prophecy. There's a lot else in that interview as well. It's also quite funny uh, if people haven't heard it already. And then Helen and I will come back at the end and reflect on whether we think it is going to destroy the Trump presidency and whether those warnings really do now bite. Michael, one of the themes of The Fifth Risk is that Trump and his people are deeply ignorant of how government works, but that's also a strategic choice. I mean, it really serves their interests to not know it. How does that work? How does it work, do you think, as a political strategy to be running the government and profoundly ignorant. I think you've got to make a distinction between Trump and the Trump administration. And I think what we have right now is kind of government by whim at the very top. And lots of people within his administration kind of trying to cover for him in in various ways. So the way it works with Trump is I think that his ignorance gives him a pass to ignore the consequences of the things he does. I mean, I think if he actually knew what it was he wasn't managing, I think he'd go insane. Even he wouldn't sleep at night. Even he wouldn't sleep at night. I think that's right. And But let's get across the degree of the negligence and the ignorance. This is the degree to which he does not let information in. 
and this is what caught my eye about the story, that there was a law that required Barack Obama to to depute or deputize a thousand people to prepare to hand the government over, and that they had spent six months across the federal government preparing to explain how it worked to the person who was elected, whoever that person was, and that there was a law that required both the candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, to prepare a hundreds of persons operation to go in and receive the government. You know, unlike the U.K. government, the U.S. government is run by political people. Donald Trump was supposed to appoint 4,000 people to run this 2 million person enterprise. And that the day after the election, he fires the entire transition operation. So there's absolutely no exchange. So that I can, months, I mean more than months, year and a half after he's taken office, I can go into any department in the government and get briefings that seem to me quite important that the Trump administration has not received. It's that degree of negligence. And so when he starts with, none of this matters, it doesn't matter, I can put whoever I want into these jobs, I don't have to listen to anybody, it's a, it's a, it becomes a reality TV show. What he's done is shut down any channel of kind of information out of the bureaucracy to him. And as far as I can tell, his only relationship to this thing he's running is to use it as a kind of whipping boy every now and then, the deep state. Do you think, though, that in part that is because it didn't really occur to him that he could win? Oh, I think this is absolutely true. I mean, he is the dog who caught the car, right? He wasn't. He didn't mean to catch the car. I mean, the whole thing was a, a brand-building exercise, and it got out of control. Partly he didn't think he was going to win, so that... For that reason, he told Chris Christie this. Chris Christie built his opera, his transition operation. That basically, this is a waste of my money to build this thing. And Christie had to explain to him, "No, by you're required to to, law, to, yeah. to do this." So that's partly it. But now, if you had if you had run for president as a brand building exercise, and you had won by accident, your next step wouldn't be to just ignore everything that it, the government does. You'd be you'd be panicked, right? You'd be, oh my God, I've got to learn how this place runs. But absolutely no interest. I mean, no interest at all. Uh, so for me, the problem in my society is not confined to Donald Trump. There's been, a, I mean, the, the whole country needs a civics lesson. I need a civics lesson. And we've been able to afford to ignore our government, be vaguely hostile to it for decades. Trump just made this material interesting. You know, he, he's just taking it to an extreme. So in some ways, the way he's behaved has been a huge public service because it's drawn everybody's attention to this thing that has been kind of neglected. And like you say, for him, there is a kind of advantage in not knowing because if he knew, he couldn't be the kind of politician he is. For American citizens, you can go a long way and spend a lot of time not knowing how government works and then you might collide with it. But there are other people who, though he didn't fill many of these roles, he filled some of them. I mean, some people have been sent in and they are actually sitting at the top of some of these organisations. How does that work? They can't shut their eyes to the whole thing. And you write about some of them in the book. We'll come on to some examples. But how do you think the kind of political strategy works there? If you're sent in to run a big government department by a president who doesn't know how it works, elected by people who don't know how it works. So it's a complicated story because once you abandon any sense that there's any deep mission here and you don't, as president, actually care what's going on in your government, you attract more than one kind of person. So... There is a strain in the Trump administration of just kind of shocking corruption. 
So that's one kind of person you attract is someone who has an actual business interest in whatever this the government's doing, either in disabling it or turning it in a certain direction that will benefit your either your company you you come from, assets you own. So a good example of this, maybe the purest case study, the National Weather Service. It's how Americans get their weather. But Americans don't know that's how they get their weather. The National Weather Service gathers all the data required for the weather models and actually generates its own very good predictions. But we also have this private weather enterprise, companies that sell market weather forecasts, the Weather Channel, AccuWeather, and these places depend on the National Weather Service for their data in order to make their weather predictions. Americans just see the private companies, mainly, because the National Weather Service is not allowed to market itself, even though it's hovering there in the background. And so every now and then you'll have some numbnut congressman say, why do we need the National Weather Service so we can get our weather from AccuWeather? But, but they're not realizing that AccuWeather is getting its weather from the government that these people are supposed to be managing. So Trump, into the job of running the National Weather Service, allows the fellow who's the CEO and owner of this family business, AccuWeather, who has been for decades trying to stymie whatever relationship the National Weather Service has with the American people and make it difficult for the American people to get the National Weather Service forecast so they have to pay for AccuWeather. And if you go into the National Weather Service, they would tell you this is the single worst person to put in charge of us because he's hostile our, the service we provide the American people. The, the guy actually tried to get a bill passed that made, would forbid the National Weather Service for communicating with the American people. Now, think about what that means. It means you're going to privatize weather forecasting, or at least the delivery of the weather forecast. The National Weather Service would still provide its data to AccuWeather. It means that if you're living in Oklahoma and you're worried about tornadoes, God help you if you can't pay for the, for the very best forecast. It creates this dystopia where rich people can get out of the way of bad weather and poor people get killed by it. So this man is a really good example of one version of the Trump administration, one part of it, which is like, I have a particular business interest and I'm going to go in and figure, figure out how to turn this enterprise towards it. But I'm not sure that's the majority of the Trump. It isn't. You see similar sorts of things with people who've gone in and say ranchers managed to get into the Department of Agriculture right after the election and shut down the publication of animal abuse cases. Things like that that have gone on. Fossil fuel companies have managed to get their, you know, their fingers in various climate change operations and shut them down. So one strain of Trumpism is just like, let's just pillage the place. But there's a second. And the second is Rick Perry, who is until now the Secretary of Energy. Now, Rick Perry, I think, is probably a pleasant, nice guy who, while he was presidential candidate, called for the elimination of the Department of Energy. When he remembered that that was the one. But he couldn't remember that was... He he said he wanted to remove, eliminate three departments of government, and he couldn't remember the names on stage in a presidential debate. And then afterwards said, oh, yeah, it was the Department of Energy. And back then, that did disqualify you from being president because his campaign... Created one would have to ask now whether. What's so funny about it is what people thought was embarrassing was that he couldn't remember the name of the Department of Energy. What should have been embarrassing is that he wanted to eliminate the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy manages the nuclear arsenal. 
among other things. And it's not even, that's not even the most interesting thing it does. It's got responsibility for not huge, but incredibly important sort of seed venture capital investment in technologies that are moonshot technologies that private enterprise won't invest in that has generated, I don't know, the solar power industry comes out of the Department of Energy. Tesla would not exist without loans from the Department of Energy. So it's been really important to the American economy. It also manages all the national labs, Lawrence Livermore, the Berkeley Lab. I mean, it's a science enterprise. But nobody said to Rick Perry when he was, you know, like, how do you justify eliminating this thing? And then, of course, when Trump nominates him, and why does Trump nominate him? Because Trump's now doing it all by himself as a reality TV show, and he thinks energy, oil, Texas, cowboy. He looks like he should be Secretary of Energy. The previous Secretary of Energy was an MIT physicist, which is a really good qualification because you're dealing with a, it's a big physics enterprise. Now, you don't have to be a physicist to run the Department of Energy, but it helps to at least be able to have the conversation. And Rick Perry, he doesn't have a brain that's capable of engaging with the basic mission of, of the place. Now, he's not hostile to the mission. When he gets the job, he actually says, I'm so sorry. I said, we were going to eliminate this. Now I know what it does, that it's clearly really important. And then he runs around and becomes a cheerleader for the Department of Energy. But he can't actually manage it. He's, in, he's incapable of it. And so that's a second version. It's just people who manage to stay in Trump's good graces, who were willing to demonstrate sufficient loyalty to Trump, who were completely and utterly unqualified for the jobs they've been given, but they want to garnish their resume. So that's there's some of that, and quite a bit of that, actually, especially in lower-level positions. And I'd say the, the third streak are people who are actively hostile to government, ideological libertarians, who are often hooked up to industries that want to see regulation eliminated, that kind of thing. But Mick Mulvaney, for example, put in charge of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is everybody agreed on the back end of the financial crisis, like was a, was a good thing to create. We needed, a, we needed a referee between the bottom half of the American economic order and Wall Street, which was pillaging them. You know, in the subprime mortgage loan space, in payday lending, in student loans, these things need to be policed because the people who are using the financial products are easy to abuse and they're being abused. Mick Mulvaney has gone in in the most extraordinary way, and there have not really been very many stories about this. This is a, But he's gone in and they can't eliminate the department. It's not in their power. But they can, like, take everybody from the student loan place and move them over to the payday loan place. They don't know what they're doing. Or tell them none of this stuff is going to be released. Do your work. None of it's going to go anywhere. They just stuck a wrench in it. And, I mean, there are financial interests that are happy. They stuck a wrench in it. But I think they stuck a wrench in it in part because Mick Mulvaney thinks that, like, government regulation shouldn't exist. This kind of idiot libertarian thing. So... It's lots of different things going on at once. Trumpism. But would you say, you know, it seems to me when I was listening to you that they all seem more extreme forms of what's happened before. So the first one, that you have plenty of businesses who see government as an opportunity to get contracts um, from. The second one, you get political appointments, people who are basically being rewarded for their loyalty to a a president. And the third one is the kind of thing that the Reagan administration, to some extent. So do you see this as a a continuum in which then Trump just took it to a whole other level? It's a caricature. That's right. It's just more extreme, (laughs) unleavened by actual expertise. 
that's the other theme is that anybody who knows anything need not apply. There are a couple of exceptions, like people who ended up in jobs, and it's surprising how well-suited they are for the job, but nobody was paying attention. Head of the SEC, I think, is very good. By accident, some people have ended up in the right job, but there were a whole raft of people who were Republicans, who were well-suited to run some of these places, who knew things, who were dismissed largely because they knew something. Because in knowing something, it's harder to resist the impulse to challenge Trump, I mean, to go to explain to him. Have you seen, you know, it's very interesting to see the way Trump responds when someone tries to tell him something new. And he did this very publicly. It was sort of hit Twitter for a moment, and then it didn't get the attention I thought it deserved. When, maybe three or four months ago, two American female astronauts did a spacewalk, and what was historic about it was two women had never walked in space together before, but women had walked in space, not just American women. Russian women was the first one to do it. And obviously lots of people walked in space. But they had a call with Trump while they were doing it. So there was this great moment where Trump, all he had to do was be gracious. But Trump says, he gets on, he says, you're the first women to walk in space. Well, the women astronauts, there's a great tradition of female astronauts. They know that what they wasn't true. They just said very politely, we would be remiss if we didn't say that you no, know, some a woman has walked in space before us. And this is all on on camera. Trump gives them the finger. As there's <laughs> as the minute they are start telling him this, in the in the polite way, he does he does this, you know, in a way a teenage boy does with his mom and rubs his middle finger up against his temple. He's giving them the finger. I think that is kind of like this is one aspect of his character. It's a terrifying aspect that he he regards people telling him things he doesn't know as an insult because he knows everything. Know nothing, you know everything. His belief about himself, and I think it's a very deep belief, is I know everything. So if you're trying to tell me something new, then you're challenging my sense of myself. And I think that's who he is. So that's a problem when you take over something as complicated as the government because nobody nobody knows. Even in, like, this really funny, one of the things, I didn't know anything about the government when I went in and started writing this book. To find out that lifetime civil servants who work inside the Department of Agriculture are so aware of how little they know about their own department that they've created a drinking game. And the drinking game is someone says something that the government does. And you have to guess, as an employee of the Department of Agriculture, whether the Department of Agriculture does it. And if you guess wrong, you drink. And there's so many things the Department of Agriculture does that this drinking game can go on forever. So it's a complicated enterprise. And the pose of the, I mean, the most useful attitude of anybody who's been elected president in its presence is humility. You need to explain this to me. And he took the opposite approach. He fired everybody who could have explained it to him and said, I'm doing it all by myself. So then the question is like, what are the consequences? This is a new, it's a novel, even Reagan didn't do this kind of thing. It's a novel approach to governing. When I was reading about the AccuWeather guy, it made me think of that ongoing argument in American politics. Obama captured it when he said, you didn't build this, we built it. You know, and, that, and that argument that the entrepreneurs think that they are the engines of innovation and growth but it's almost always piggybacking off government work. And the question is, do they know it or don't they? But the AccuWeather guy knows it. I mean, the difference between the ignorant ones and him is that he doesn't have a business without government. He can't be naive and ignorant. And that one was scarier in a way to me than the the Rick Perry thing. Because it's so cynical. Yeah, ignorance can be filled in. 
But this guy, he's not, yeah. he's not lacking the knowledge, and he's playing with fire. Yeah, literally. No, I know. And Trump doesn't mind playing with fire. Is fine. He, 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 which the, you know, you saw you saw Trump's attitude towards the National Weather Service when there was that tornado outbreak in the southeast of the United States, and he says just off the cuff, "It's going to hit Alabama. Watch out, Alabama." And the National Weather Service has explicitly said it's not going to hit Alabama. Don't watch out Alabama. And this is significant. People are doing things in response to what the president's saying. And then Trump demanded they give him a map that showed the cone of probability, including Alabama, which they didn't do. So we, on national television, he takes a Sharpie and redraws the, the tornado warning map so that it includes Alabama. So I think... Donald Trump's response to the dude who walks in and says, I want to run the weather service. I, I'm a CEO of AccuWeather. First, he knows the weather. He's from AccuWeather. Second, when he finds out, just how, if he were to find out how corrupt it was, I want a piece of the action. When, but, the, when the AccuWeather guy sees Trump changing the map, that's not good for the AccuWeather guy's business model. I mean, at some point, presumably, there ought to be a tension between the ones who know they depend on government and, okay, they're going to stifle it and prevent people getting information so they can be the conduit. But they need the information. They need the information. And a president who doesn't yeah. give a shit. No. So you, I think the stories that will be told of what people thought and did around Donald Trump, who happened to have been put in the positions people who knew a little bit or a lot to either offset him, stymie him, or just swallowing their their concern, it's going to be great. There's no way we know but a fraction of the horrifying things that might have happened had there not been someone there to, to like not let him sign the paper or not let him issue the order or just ignore the order. And the, and the Bob Woodward gave a bit of that, yeah, but, it was, yes. but it was at the level of, as it were, the West Wing. You know, it was the people who could get into the Oval Office and remove the piece of paper from his desk. Right. But this is something completely different. This is all, you know, this, this is through is, the administration. This is actual government, yeah. not, not just the executive. That's right. And there are thousands of people grappling with this every day. Yes, that's right. In If it were a private enterprise, the government, well, it would have emptied out by now, probably. But in addition, there'd be such an impulse to go and make all of it public problem is Trump has walked into an environment that's perfectly, it's as ideally suited for him to get away with this as an environment could be because the civil service has taught you obey the president. You're here to serve at the pleasure of the president. And when I was working on this book, the single biggest problem was getting inside the places. And people who were still working there felt that was almost treasonous to talk to me unless Trump wanted me to talk and they so Trump didn't want me to talk to them so that I had to get what I got in all kinds of tricky ways but I wasn't really inside the places and you just know inside the places there is a story that's breathtaking one of my f literary fantasies is if Trump loses the next election it would be to take 12 writers I think are just great and drop them inside the various departments of government just tell me what happened because you know, you could you go to the Department of Transportation. I bet there's a, a novel to be written, and nobody nobody's paid much attention to. Talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So how does you see this all this fitting with democratic politics? Because you know, the way that you read the book, and it's hard to avoid the conclusion that you've drawn that, that the man shouldn't be president that a man it's not it's not actually so much his ignorance as you say because everybody in the face of the scale of the federal government has to be ignorant to some degree it's the absence of any humility in the face of the ignorance and an unwillingness to take any responsibility or to learn for his ignorance yeah or to or, or to learn or to find people who know yeah. things but he's also elected president of the united states and that he will be up for re-election so what do you do in democratic politics when somebody who is so unfit for office, in your sense, then is elected to the presidency? What do you do? <laughs> Why are you well, asking we me? We, we don't have that what problem. am I supposed to do? We don't have this problem because we have a parliamentary <laughs> system and if at a certain point, if it were the case that a parliamentary uh, colleagues of a prime minister reached that conclusion... They could remove him. They could, they could remove him or her right. from office. But that isn't the same in the United so States. So it can be done in the United States. And we're going to dust this off because at the beginning of his administration, there was talk of it. The, the cabinet can the remove him. The 25th Amendment. Yeah, there's that amendment. The cabinet can remove him. The Congress can remove him. They're going to impe- about to impeach him. They're not going to remove him, it doesn't look like. So there, he could be removed. That doesn't appear likely. But they couldn't impeach him for being... The, Just bad. For, for being the problem that you're if describing they, they in read, this book. You read The Fifth Risk and you think... This is not good. Um, and this is incredibly dangerous. You know, the, the risk, as you say, you know, the fifth risk is the big one. And so it cannot stand. And yet this book is not an impeachable offence. <clears throat> I mean, no. you're not, not you're writing it, but the, the material... The material <laughs> it might be an impeachable yeah, It might offense. be a treasonable offence. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, as well, you present this in the United States Congress, and this is not evidence for impeachment. No, that's true. So, what, so, so there is this. I mean, do, do you skew, well, so, skew so you the process? So you what do... I do. I write no, no, this book. What does your country's politics do? All right. So it's a curious thing because you would think that the president's unwillingness to manage the two million person workforce he's supposed to manage would be an issue. It's part of the issue that, you know, all the people who hate him have with him, but it isn't the main issue. And his supporters don't seem to care at all. So it hasn't surfaced in a funny way in the, so far in the election. I had thought, when I started in on this, when I started to learn all the things the government did and how it was now being managed, I did think, like, this is, it's, it's a huge issue waiting to happen. It's, someone is going to campaign positively selling the government rather than attacking it at some point. And the question is, like, what triggers that? What, co- what will cause it to surface? And it's, what will happen is some catastrophe that is clearly the result of government mismanagement will make it possible for someone to start to sell the story. Like, we need to do this better because look what just happened. On the order of, I don't know, the Bush with Katrina, that that particular instance wasn't enough at the time to inspire some Democratic candidate to say, you know, what this thing does is so important. Here's, you need to understand it. But the fact is, it is. And I think it's just like, one day we'll look back and say, how did it take them so long? 
to figure out that, that they could sell their government to the people. But couldn't you argue that Katrina actually was the point from which the Bush presidency actually didn't recover? It's true, but what was surprising is that the way, the way it was framed was Bush doesn't care about ordinary people. Oddly, I think he actually did care about ordinary people. It should have been framed as this is what happens when the government's not managed properly. But it, it, it wasn't. So there was an opportunity missed there from the point of people who, want, who think that we need to reengage with the government and figure out how to run it better. Elizabeth Warren, seen from the outside, could have been that candidate. Might still be. Might still be. And yet there seems to be, you know, there is this thing in democratic politics that people obsess with the what, you know, like what's she going to do? What She's got a plan for this, but not the how. Your book is about the how more yeah. than the what. And from the outside, it doesn't seem like she's articulating the, it almost doesn't matter it matters what the plan is, but it doesn't matter how brilliant the plan is. What really matters is how. You know, if we don't have the capacity, it doesn't so matter you, how good the plan is. But she's not saying that, is she? So if you want to regulate Wall Street properly and you have an inept Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because we've intentionally made it inept, it doesn't matter how much you want to regulate it Wall Street. It doesn't matter how great your plan is. That's right. Because... It doesn't matter how great your plan is. This is totally right. I think it's more likely that Elizabeth Warren is going to engage early on with the how, because anybody who particularly wants to use the government to do something is going to need to get to that quickly. And there are mechanisms. The trick is, there are a couple of things that need to be done that wouldn't need to be done in this society. The minute you have the nomination is when you really engage with the how, because you have to have, you need to go to the Senate before you even get elected and say, this is going to be the raft of people I want to put in. And I want to put them in quickly. That's one of the big problems is getting people in the jobs quickly. But also making sure all those people are, you know, can be confirmed, they're confirmable, and they're, they're the right people for the job, all that. It's a management problem. It's a management of big organization problem, which is, sounds like a boring subject. And in some hands, it would be a boring subject, but it doesn't have to be a boring subject. But this is the, the nut that needs to be cracked, is how you manage this enterprise better. And someone who doesn't care what the enterprise does or doesn't care if it's run badly is not going to be the person who fixes it. But someone like a Warren would be a likely candidate. So we've just re-elected, well, elected because he wasn't elected before, the man that Trump calls Britain Trump. How do you think Boris Johnson feels about being called Britain's Trump? I don't think it, I, I don't think he likes it. And I don't think he is actually. No, I mean, I think I, reading your book, he's you a very see, different character. Yeah. He's definitely not the guy who is coming out of the fifth risk. He's not <gasps> stupid. He's not stupid. He's not ignorant. But also, he's surrounded by people who, so his chief advisor, Dominic Cummings. So he had, you know, Trump does not have someone in that role, has been thinking for 20 plus years about how to reform the administrative state, the blob as he sees it, but not by just neglecting it or ignoring it. Right. I mean, it's that other thing, which I don't think exists in any of your categories, which is the kind of super smart guy who really wants to experiment with this thing, bring in outsiders, get it used to ideas of failure. It's, but it's a completely different mindset. I, don't, I didn't see anywhere in your account those kind of people, which, who do sometimes attach themselves to not Trump politicians, but Boris Johnson-style politicians. But Johnson, there is a project here to potentially reinvent the administrative state but it is a conscious thought through it may well not work but these are totally different kinds totally of different things you know it's funny i think i think that the analogy between trump and johnson is misleading there are forces that are obviously propelling similar forces that are propelling both of them hostility to immigration 
it being a very good example. But they themselves seem like very different characters, and their motives seem a little different to me. You know, when I, I was having an argument with a friend last night, not an argument, discussion, a British friend, who's more screwed, us or you? Would you rather play our hand or your hand? So just say on this podcast, we also include the French when we have this argument. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think you should leave them out of it, but we will leave them but, out but of it for now. Because they have a smart president, but I'm I not sure they're in great shape. I would far rather have your political leader, but I'd far rather have our broader portfolio of problems and assets and liabilities. You, you have bigger, deeper problems, than I think, than we do, but we have, we have a genuinely, I think, insane person running the government. I think he's actually a crazy person. If he was in any other context, he might be institutionalized. But he's it came out of New York real estate, which tolerates a lot. And Manhattan has a lot to answer for. I don't think there's any other society in the States that would have tolerated Donald Trump. New York masked a lot of stuff. And we've got him in the White House. And that, that's just not what you have. It's, you have a different thing. One shared feature of these two successful politicians, the, the, the movement that supports them is that when you look at the demographics, they tend to attract votes from people who didn't go to college, I mean, or university. There's a big education yep. divide in politics. And sometimes this is played out as kind of ignorance versus knowledge. But as you say, I mean, I always think that's a very misleading way to do it, that the, you know, the people who elected these politicians don't know what they're doing. Because as you say, no one knows this story. You didn't know it. I didn't know it. It's not like the people on the other side, the people who vote for Corbyn or Elizabeth Warren, know what these government departments do. It's it's not a divide in the electorate between ignorance and knowledge about the need for government. This is true. And so it's a dangerous line because you sometimes hear it. You heard it around Brexit in this country that kind of the ignorant people had voted for the thing they didn't understand. No one understood. That's true. But it's much more dangerous when the president in the face of that ignorance behaves like your yes. president does. That seems to be the... Well put. There is a dangerous narrative at work here, which is the electorate is divided between ignorance and knowledge. And I don't think that's the... I agree. I think I just want to pick you up on something you said earlier in that respect as well. You said that we all needed... You needed a civic education. I certainly feel like that, that in this country. I feel like we've been put through a civic education over the last three and a half years right. because of what happened after the referendum. I don't think that in this country we understood our own constitution. I don't think we understood what was happening to our country's politics. I don't think we understood many of the social and economic problems in this country. In that sense, I think that what's happened has been a wake-up call to us all of facing our own ignorance. So I think this is the silver lining of Trump, is that I think that versions of that have happened to a lot of Americans, an awareness that I need to start paying a different kind of attention to this process. So I think that's true. And I think that, you know, this political moment is a byproduct of a very long period of not exactly peace and prosperity. They're obviously, you know, America's been at war in its own way forever. And not everybody is experiencing prosperity. But there's been an absence for a long time of an existential threat of the sort that like the Cold War provided or World War II or the Depression or the pandemics that happened in the early 20th century. So there's been this less less of a need. People feel less, they, they can afford to ignore this thing. It's the 90s that sent us off, I think, into this, the luxury of stepping back from things that actually we needed to be much more engaged with. Yeah, I would have taken it back a little further, the 80s. But yes, I think that's right. It's a luxury to be able to afford Donald Trump in the White House. And I think that a lot of the people who will pay the biggest price 
for him being there are people who voted for him. And they'll realize at some point that this was, I mean, you know, it, it was one of the really striking things about the Trump support was that consistently across the country, the more rural the person, the more likely they were to vote for Trump. The fewer people in their town, the more likely they were for Trump. And it's also true that the fewer people who are in your town, the more utterly dependent you are on the United States government for the firehouse, the schools, the hospital, and that people didn't make that connection, that they're handing over essentially the instrument for their salvation to someone who doesn't care about it is breathtaking. It's, it's beyond like not voting for your economic interest. It's like you're voting for someone who potentially could just crater your entire existence. Uh, but isn't it also then a breathtaking indictment of what came before that it got to this point? Yes, it is. That, I think that's absolutely true. We're nearly out of time. I, w I was hankering to ask you about the connections between this and all the other things you write about from sport to behavioral economics mm -hmm. to everything else. I want to do one on finance and Wall Street and a question about ignorance. So the people who ran those banks that nearly took us all down did not know what was going on inside those banks. Clearly. The, the chief executives did not understand what they were selling. And the consequences were nearly, well, were catastrophic for some of them and nearly catastrophic for all of us. Here we are 10 plus years on. So they had the ultimate wake-up call. We haven't had that yet in politics. And God knows what it would look like if we did. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about it in a way. But are the people who run those banks? I mean, if we took that as the model, did they learn the lesson? Do they now know what they're doing when they saw the consequences of their ignorance? Or are they back in the place where we started this conversation, which is ignorance is actually strategically useful if you want to be in this business? So um, I know it's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. All your other no, interests. no. So what I I guess my my crude answer is that the society f has forced them to behave differently than they behaved leading into the crisis. So, so for example, they all are better capitalized than they were. All the American banks are much better capitalized than they were before. They've got a cushion that they didn't have. I think it's also true to say that the CEOs are all, if I had to bet, warier of their employees and more aware of their ignorance. But the well, people might be doing things inside yeah, the bank. That... So they, they know that if they, if they didn't know before, and it's hard to believe they didn't know before, they must know that these institutions are too complicated to manage. J.P. Morgan, as smart as Jamie Dimon is, and as, as well run as it is compared to all the other ones, he can't know everything that's going on inside J.P. Morgan. It's just too complicated. These things are many times the size and many times the complexity of the Solomon Brothers that I once worked in. And there was no way the head of Solomon Brothers knew what everybody was doing. And I could, I could prove it to you because I was doing stuff that, that was kind of crazy that he didn't know about. And I was a minion. So I think what they counted on going into the crisis was everybody had the same incentives. Everybody had the same interests inside the bank. And everybody was kind of smart and selfish, so it would result in us making money. They didn't realize that they had people who could make lots of money doing things that would, in the end, torpedo the bank. So I bet they have reacted to that. I don't, I don't know for a fact, but I, I bet that they've reacted to that. In any case, we all know the same crisis never happens twice. Whatever happens next, it's not going to look like the financial crisis. It'll look like something else. And if I had to predict what's going to happen in the financial sector, is it's it's not going to start in the financial sector. It'll start with the government. I mean, if Don, Donald Trump does something that calls into question, say, the trustworthiness of the U.S. government to repay its debts, that's the kind of thing that could trigger the next financial crisis. And the other thing to say is a man like Donald Trump would never end up running 
a bank because uh-huh. he they wouldn't let him anywhere near it. They I mean, thought he was yeah. back when he was in a real estate developer. They thought he was dishonest and they thought he was an idiot. By the time he was done with the New York banks, they wouldn't lend to him. So Helen, you said at the beginning that that interview was something you thought about a lot in the early weeks of this crisis. I suppose in some ways we still are in the early weeks, but maybe we're now in the early months of it. And there are many, many months to come. And there is a long way to go until November. We are also in the middle of what had been a very gripping presidential race, and it's now slightly on hold too. Trump's approval ratings, despite everything, are going up. Everyone who is in power everywhere in the world, it seems now, their approval ratings, temporarily at least, are going up. It doesn't at this moment look like it has destroyed Trump's presidency, though it may yet do that. It clearly has brought right to the front of people's minds that fundamental question that was at the heart of Michael Lewis's book, which is, what has Trump done to the ability of the American state to deploy expert bureaucratic knowledge and administrative structures to essentially protect the safety of the American people? That question, as he said, he wondered what would be the crisis that would make it visible to people. It is unquestionably now visible. It's still not completely clear to me that it is politically salient in the way that maybe one would expect it to be, that other issues have crowded in. So one, for instance, if you look at the way this crisis is unfolding in the United States, and we're not at the peak of it yet, but we're at the point where Trump has moved dramatically in his tone and his rhetoric. He's still Trump. It's still Trumpish. But he is warning people now that this is a really, really serious threat. And yet Cuomo, the governor of New York, has become his foil in this, representing a different kind of politics, a different kind of administrative competence, but also representing the age-old contest in America between the states, the governors, the governance of individual states, and the federal government, the relative ability of those different actors to deploy their powers. I mean, we're seeing that old story, which for now at least possibly has squeezed out Michael Lewis's story, which is Trump destroyed the capacity of the federal state. Or or do you think that story is still there? I'm just missing it. No, I think that it has been overtaken both by the domestic politics of it that's emerged and by the international politics around it as well. And I think you're absolutely right. On the domestic side, it's very much introduced or reintroduced into American politics, these conflicts between federal authority and state authority. And actually, at one moment, at least in the crisis where it looked like Trump wanted to basically stop movement out of of New York state, it looked like he was the one who was taking this in terms of the threat more seriously than Cuomo, who was more worried about what the consequences, or that's a bit unfair to him, but could be seen as being more worried about what the consequences for the New York economy were shutting New York State down to the to the rest of the um, United States. And I think you can see some of the same federal state issues playing out in relation to California. I saw something um, this morning from the, I think it was from the governor of, of California, actually talking about California, not just as a state, but as a nation state. I mean, I mean <laughs> that's a... It's, it's not. <laughs> it's kind of a, in some sense, it's a mind-boggling. It's not. It's a mind-boggling thing for the governor. I think it was the governor of California to say. But in crises in America, all the way through American history, we would expect to see these very sharp conflicts between federal authority and state authority. I think, in terms of domestic politics as well, then Trump has been helped by the poor performance of Joe Biden. In some sense, 
Andrew Cuomo's performance as um, governor of of New York has shone a, a not you know useful light from Biden's point of view on on his performance. But I think it's also brought out the fact that executives matter. Now, why is it that Cuomo is having a better crisis than than Joe Biden? Because he, as a governor, uh, has an executive authority at the moment, and what can um, Biden do but you know try and film himself or have his campaign team film himself badly you know in the basement of his of his house and so because executives can act whether they act well or badly they are at a political advantage and I think that in terms of the contest with Biden the fact that actually Biden has has never had held an executive position he spent his career in the in the Senate. Well, he's been vice president of the United States. Vice president, but it's not yeah, subordinated to Obama. Yeah, it's not much of an executive position. It's not much of an executive um, a position will work, will, will work to his disadvantage. And then internationally, I think Trump made some you know, very particular decisions about the capacity that the, the White House and the National Security, the National Security Council had for expertise around um, pandemics. And, and Trump basically you know, said this stuff doesn't matter and we're not we're having it. I think it was back in um, in 2018 and that that should look like an enormous political liability for him particularly when you add in the fact that uh, the politics of healthcare is as fraught as it is um, in the um, United States pretty much every western democracy looks radically unprepared for this crisis in in one way or another and then I think the fact that Trump has had taking the positions that he has on the China relationship is actually giving him some political capital out of this crisis as well. So again, if you make the comparison, um, you know, like with Biden, Biden, I think, was saying sort of towards the end of July, sorry, towards the end of January, when when Trump was shutting down flights from China, from China this was a, a xenophobic thing um, to do. And Trump is going to be able to say, look, I always told you that deep engagement with with China was a was a problem. So I think that whilst Lewis was absolutely right in what he saw as being terrifying uh, in any number of ways, that the politics of it will actually not necessarily play out in ways that are destructive to the Trump presidency, at least as things stand at the moment. We'll pick up the question of state versus federal authority with Gary Gerstle next week and also where we think we are with Joe Biden. He's not absolutely certain to be the candidate that takes on Trump. I suppose not absolutely certain Trump will be the candidate either. Not least we're dealing with old men here, and this is a dangerous time to be an old man. On the international comparison, this is the feeling that I had. Michael Lewis's case was about both American exceptionalism and the exceptionalism of the Trump presidency within the history of presidencies. The argument being that whatever presidents say on the campaign trail when they get the power that they do after a victory, they all lock into a certain kind of behavior. They take seriously issues around transition. They take seriously the fact that they are fundamentally ignorant and they need to learn the nature of this vast machine that they've inherited. And Trump did none of that. He didn't care. He didn't want to know. Um, He was contemptuous. He looks like an outlier. And then the United States is an outlier because it had this enormous capacity. And when the United States' capacity in this area is diminished, the world suffers. And we may yet see a good deal of that if, if as it now looks like, the, the country on earth, I mean, we have to see what's going to happen in India and elsewhere. But the nation on earth that is most vulnerable to this crisis is the United States with disastrous potential consequences for the rest of the world. American exceptionalism matters again. And yet, as you say, what I've felt is that 
as the disease, as the crisis unfolds, the fact that Trump behaved in this mind-bogglingly cavalier and irresponsible way, that he denuded the capacity of the American state in the areas where it most needed it in this crisis, has been slightly lost in the wash of what's happened in Italy and Spain and Great Britain and potentially what's going to happen in Brazil or Mexico or potentially in South Africa or India or elsewhere. It doesn't look, as we stand now, as though the central political mistake that has been made was what Trump did to the American administrative state, even though it is also possible that that's the thing that's going to have the the most far-reaching consequences. So I, I think I agree with you. Michael Lewis was completely right, terrifyingly right, and yet it hasn't sharpened that question that he hoped it would sharpen in the minds of Americans and others, just why government matters in the way that he said it would or hoped it might, because this crisis has overwhelmed that question. It has. And I think that if we get, well, if and when we, we get to the end of it and we people are able to, to look back and see what the worst mistakes have been in terms of judgment and what the worst structural conditions were to be in when the crisis um, started. Now, it's quite possible that the the story out of the United States is actually going to be about the way in which its health system works, rather than about the state of the American administrative state. And it's possible that what a number of commentators have made this point: what currently marks the exceptional nature of American society is the poor health of its citizens, that its vulnerability to this disease is because relative to China, among other places, it contains large numbers of people, not all of them old, who have underlying health conditions. Um, It is a massively unequal society in health terms, simply on an issue like obesity. It is nothing like China. We don't know. China may have been on a path to not US levels of obesity, but certainly to becoming a much less healthy society. But when this crisis hit, the United States looks very different. And that has got something to do with American state capacity and uh, the American administrative state. But it's not, that is not something, the fact that many Americans are so unwell, that can be exclusively laid at Trump's door. I mean, that those conditions long precede the Trump presidency. I mean, obviously, the health inequalities in the United States run deep, very deep in relation to who gets access to, to the healthcare system um, as well. And the fact that that Trump made some changes to Obamacare without actually replacing it and sort of left essentially a mess, I think has got a greater potential to to cause him, you know, significant political damage. I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that the United States has been having elections about healthcare since at least 2010, since the midterm um, elections and two years into the Obama's presidency and probably the single most important issue in terms of getting the Democrats control of the House of Representatives in the midterm in 2018 was healthcare. It was the first time it worked to their advantage rather than to the Republicans' advantage for nearly a decade. And I think if, if we see the way in which the outcomes in the United States play out in relation to the deep inequalities about healthcare provision, I think that that will be a political problem for Trump on a scale beyond the question of what he did to the American administrative state. And then one last question, and again, we'll probably pick this up with Gary next week. So you made the point when we were talking about Europe that 
we're right in the eye of this storm, but as we emerge the other side, what's going to become much more visible is who won and who lost in the emergency decisions that governments made, particularly about who got support, which jobs got saved, which businesses got saved, which sectors of the economy got special protection, which were allowed to fight for themselves. There's nothing new about that. That is democratic politics. Do you think as we move towards November, um, that that's going to become the central battleground of presidential politics? So this is going to be less about what Trump did to the American state leaving it so exposed to this crisis and more about what not just Trump but Congress and not just the Republicans but both parties have done in order to see America through this crisis. Yeah I mean I think yes I mean I think that what happens to the economy given the monumental shock that has been delivered to it is going to be in the end the biggest question for the American election. I mean in this sense, Trump has gone from somebody who was running on the economy and thinking it was his best shot of shot of re-election to running the real risk that he's going to be running for re-election deep in what would still be deep in an economic crisis. The economic crisis in relation to unemployment has a uh, a particular risk in the United States because it ties directly back into the into the health crisis because of the numbers of people who will have lost their jobs and lost their health insurance with it. So you get the kind of economic crisis that the United States is having at the moment. uh, And you, by necessity, have to have another healthcare crisis as well. In anything like normal circumstances, you'd say it's incredibly difficult for an incumbent to win an election in, in these circumstances. But these aren't they, these aren't anything like normal circumstances. It is pretty clear that Joe Biden's candidacy for the presidency has been quite significantly weakened by what's happened in the last month or so. And beyond November 2020, do you think that, to go back to where we started with Michael Lewis, that this crisis does open the possibility of a maybe a new politician, maybe a familiar politician on the left, making the case? for state capacity in a way that has real electoral purchase, maybe for the first time in modern American electoral history? Possibly. I mean, I think, it, I think that that's too easy, too soon to tell there. And I think we, we, do, we will have to see how this federal state question plays itself out. And we'll have to see uh, what the damage essentially is to the, the American health system by the time it is, it is over. Because if, if that is going to be the you know, overriding sort of legacy going forward um, past um, November is that, you know, there's one way of telling the story that would suggest, okay, that that's going to move American politics in the direction of having a lot bigger federal state in relation to healthcare. But not everything's changed and it's still not really that, I think, easy to see how that kind of politics plays itself out in a federal state. So it's not yet Bernie's world. No, I mean, I think you know, in the early stages of the crisis, it was it was pretty clear that that Bernie was having. I, I hate saying good crisis. I don't mean that uh, at all. But that the point of Bernie seemed, you know, pretty clear. I mean, the sense is that he's he said that healthcare is the biggest single issue facing the United States, and it looked like uh, it was. And and he was making his points with considerable more energy force and articulacy than um, the Biden was able to say anything at all you know that doesn't mean I think that all the other things that that come with Bernie and the questions about how a massive change in in healthcare would be brought about 
um, without having lots of unintended consequences and how it's going to be um, paid for, particularly now when economic support is going to be directed to some fairly you know, like basic things within the economy itself. Those questions haven't gone away. As I said, we're going to pick up these questions in much more detail in our regular slot on Wednesday night. We're going to be talking to Gary Gerstle, who is in the United States, our regular commentator on American affairs. And we're going to be reflecting on all aspects of this crisis and its impact on American politics and American life. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. <laughs>